Fantastic. Good morning, church. Look at you all. What's God going to do today? What do you think? What's he going to do? Yeah, I would hope. I would hope he can start with my life first. It's good to be in the house, isn't it? New Year, it's a new year. This is the uh, second Sunday of 2023, which means we've got 50 to go. Which means, Carol, you'll be 71. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to... Acts chapter 13, Just uh, uh, we're, we're going to read one verse this morning, um, Acts chapter 13 verse 36, so if you turn to that and just hold on to that, I will come to you a little later on. How many of you here, 80 years and older, age-wise, remember what church was like back in the early days? Put your hand up. Um, yeah. Zoli, you remember what it was like. Let me, let me re refresh everyone's memory. When the minister preached a sermon from a six-foot-high wooden pulpit, back in the old day, they would climb up this set of stairs and this pulpit would stand up about here. And the, the, the minister was on top of that, obviously, and preaching out there to the congregation. How many of you remember that? Do you remember that? That's what it used to be like. How about if you're 60-plus, the auditorium with no heating? Who remembers that? What about the wooden bench seats that we used to have? Remember those things? Oh, my Lord. You know, what they used to do back in the day was that a family or a person would buy the bench seat and they would donate it to the church. You'd love this, John. They'd donate it to the church. And then they'd put a plaque on the back of it, John Button's seat. That's what they would do. That's what it was like. No, no heating, um, wooden bench seats, no cup of coffee or tea after the service. Everyone would kind of come in. They would do their thing, sit down on the wooden bench seat, no heating. They'd all freeze to death. And then the sermon would, would be preached, and that probably put them all to sleep. And then after that, they would all shake the pastor's hand, and they would go home. Who remembers that? Well, no mingling, no fellowship after the service, no ice cream sundaes, nothing like that. Well, for you young folk that are here, that's what church used to be like. That's what it used to be like. And thankfully, things have changed, and we've moved on from that old paradigm. That's due in large part to what you saw this morning. So you've got Mike up here, um, worship leading. You've got this wonderful music team and a bunch of musicians. That's due in large part. We've moved on from those old days because of people like that, that have that serve in their generation. They take the time to use their gifts in their time on earth, in their generation, so that we become blessed. You're a good grandma. <laughs> That's because people, like our sound desk team up there, week in and week out, and then someone runs the camera up the top, but I think it's on automatic today. The cafe team, these people, are serving you and I and blessing us in their generation. Well, this morning, as we begin this new year, I want to share with you from Acts 13.36 just one verse. 
And we're going to preach a message out of this one verse. It's about serving our generation. And when we do that, it has a flow-on effect to the next generation and even beyond, as we will see in this message. So if we pull up um, Acts, there it is. Acts 13, 36 says, for David, it's talking about King David here. After he had served his own generation, did you notice that? David served his own generation. It's a biblical principle. He then fell asleep, which means he died. Everyone go, oh, well, it's coming for you too. It's all going to happen at some point. By the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. Now, this is a biblical principle that guarantees every one of us that when we serve in our generation as our people are doing today and tomorrow and beyond, it will have a corresponding effect, according to Scripture, in the next, into the next generation. And then the generation after that, and Matthew even sometimes beyond that. This is a biblical principle. And as I preach this message, I want to acknowledge a pastor you probably know nothing about. His name is Rick Godwin. And he preached a, a, a series based on um, uh, uh, this kind of generational transfer thing. It was called that you can change the future. So I want to acknowledge this morning that some of what I'm going to speak into has actually come from that series that I heard him preach. So let's look at Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served his own generation, please notice that, by the will of God, fell asleep, and then was buried with his fathers. Now, you would think that David, after he, would pa after he passed on, that that would be the end of it, wouldn't you? He had his life, he lived his life, he did what he could, he died, that's it. That's what you would think. But if you do think that, you would be wrong. You would be dead wrong, as we shall see. You know, I can remember... Um, when I was growing up, that the number one priority in the dream of any young couple that got married was to own their first home and to pay off their mortgage. That'd be true. Now, that's still true for many today. And let, let me say this, that is a good thing. That's a good goal to have. It is not unwise. It's actually wisdom to have that kind of goal. That's still true for many today. But in God's economy, and I want you to hear this, we don't live this life just to pay our mortgage off. In God's economy, we live this life with a bigger promise, the promise of hope, hope of eternity at the very least that is transferred from one generation to the next. Because of what I do today, I can have a corresponding effect not only into this generation that I'm alive in, but the generation beyond and even beyond that. You see, God is a big picture thinker. He has long-range plans. So obviously, we have been put on earth to do more than just pay off our mortgage. Would you agree? He calls us to live out our faith in such a way that we are going to impact not only our generation that we live in, but the generations to come. Look, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God uses this phrase from generation to generation. In the NIV, you'll see that same phrase 16 times. From generation to 
generation. And the implication is this, that there is a transfer because it says from this generation to the next generation. And he uses it 16 times. Do you think he's wanting to get a message to us? It means transfer. It means that there is a progression. There is a passing on that needs to take place from one generation to the next generation. It's what is called uh, today generational transfer. And it's a powerful biblical principle that we often miss. And that's what I want to speak in today. Now, there's nothing wrong. uh, It's got nothing here to do with your gender. Uh, That little one might want to go out if you just want to. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nikki. It has nothing to do with your gender. Generational transfer has got nothing to do with your job. It's nothing to do with your status. And listen to this, you senior people, which includes me because I'm over 65. It's got nothing to do with our age, this generational transfer. Not a thing. You know, Joshua, if you read the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua 14 talks about Caleb. Caleb was 40 years of age um, uh, when he was promised by Joshua to be given the hill country in Hebron. This was a whole patch of land. It was a, it was a town, it was a city, and it was a hill country, and it was a whole bunch of land. At 40 years of age, he was promised that as his inheritance. And Caleb said to Joshua, and I'll paraphrase what the Bible says, he said, I know I didn't always make the right choice. I followed the wrong crowd for 40 years in the wilderness, and we went nowhere. But now they're all dead, and I'm alive, and I still not have have received the inheritance that you promised me. Haven't received it. And at age 85, listen to this. So he's 40 when the promise was given. 45 years later, he's now 85 years of age. He takes possession of what God had promised him. That inheritance was passed on to Caleb's children and probably his children's children and children's children's children and beyond after he died. Here's something for all of you that are over 65. This is for you. Please listen to this. If you are here today and you are 65, in fact, put your hand up. There's me. There's a few of us. There's you. She's my sister, I can do this. <laughs> She'll have it out on me later on, that's fine. We can get there. This is for you. Caleb wasn't sitting in a retirement village just waiting to pass on. He was fully persuaded that what God had earlier promised was still his. And he was And while he was still competent and able at aged 85, he took hold of the inheritance that God had previously promised him. See, here's the truth, church, and you can all smile at this. We're all going to grow old. Turn to someone and say, he's talking about me. (laughs) But here's the thing. Age is never a barrier to receiving what God has promised. It's true. There are barriers, there are roadblocks that we all have to navigate in this life throughout the entirety of our lives. More often than not, they are the result of poor choices that we've made, and that just happens to be a fact. But it is equally true. God is a redeeming God, is He not? Isn't He? 
He can return back and restore back everything that we have lost. God can do that. Caleb is a great example. Age 85, I want that inheritance. You promised it to me. And at 85, he walked into that inheritance. Isn't that great? Isn't that the hope that we have? It's equally true. God is a redeeming God. He can turn around any bad choice that we make. And if we align ourselves with him, and we align ourselves with living according to his word, God promises that he will do that. Everyone say amen. He promises that he will do that. So this morning, we're going to look into this God-inspired principle called generational transfer. And it causes your spirit to come to life again, your heart to expand, and hope to become reality. So let's read it again, Acts 13, 36. One verse. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his father. So David lived his life to the full, now he's dead. But you'll see in this message that the end was not the end. In fact, it was just the beginning for David's life. You know, during David's lifetime, you, you know the story of David, eh? the guy that killed Goliath. Apart from the bit of a faux pas with Bathsheba, the rest of his life had an amazing impact in the nation of Israel for 40 years. The, the, the Goliath thing was just the beginning. But what David did, what King David did in, for the nation of Israel, uh, they're still benefiting from that today. But you know what was far, of far greater importance than what David did during his lifetime? is what David sowed into his generation continued to impact succeeding generations after he passed. And I'll prove it to you from Scripture. So with David as our example, I want to encourage you too that if, we, if we're to have a positive impact on those around us, including the generation that we're in right now, if we are to have put positive stuff into their lives and give them hope, give them a vision, um, give them something to reach for, give them something that is bigger and better than what they have inherited or what they have right now. If we're to do that, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind from this scripture. And number one is this, choose the right vehicle to get you to your destination. Now, I'm not talking about the car you drive, Vehicle here is a metaphor that describes the stages um, uh, of growth and maturity that we all need to transition through as we go through this thing called life. You know, sociologists have identified four stages of transition um, uh, that we go through to reach maturity. Here's the first one. Zero to four years, they call it the infant stage. Now, we had a few zero to four, well, not quite zero years, but we had a few infants running around here this morning. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool having these little ones here? And it just generates life. It's the next generation coming through. And we need to honor that and respect that. And we do in this church. It's really neat to see. I mean, Christine and I had two of our grandchildren with us here this morning. That next generation coming through. 
zero to four years old, it's the infant stage. Then from four to 13 years of of age, there is what they call the child stage. Then 13 to your mid-20s, that's adolescence, that's come the young adults, you come into that phase. And then from mid-20s on, they sociologists call it the adult or the parent stage, which the majority uh, of people here are. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember the very first bike that my dad bought me when I was three, when I was in the infant stage. It was a tricycle, three-wheeler. How, do, how many of you remember your three-wheeler? Yep, yep, three-wheeler. And there's a reason for that, because at that age, you'd never probably have the balance that you needed, so three wheels helps kind of stabilize things, so you're not always falling over. So that was my, uh, that was my infant stage. And at age four, in my child stage, I graduated to a two-wheeler, but because I couldn't do the balance thing, it had training wheels on it. How many remember the training wheels? Yep. But in my particular case, um, uh, with, with the two-wheeler, with the training wheels, because my legs were too short, I couldn't reach the pedals. So my dad got these wooden blocks and he bolted them. Do you remember this, Mike? Bolted them into the pedals to, to kind of create some, the gap and uh, to take away the gap so that my feet could touch the pedals. But I still had training wheels. So I'd go zip around on this little thing, this little two-wheeler with training wheels. So that was kind of my child stage, my adolescence. And then adolescence, I came into this adolescence stage, age 13, and from there, I graduated to a 10-speed bike. Now, in my day, that was unheard of. No one had a 10-speed racing bike except me. (laughs) It was wonderful. I had this, dad, dad bought this thing for me for my birthday or something. It was just wonderful. And, uh, and I would ride that to school. And then listen to this, all you young ones. At age 16, I got my car license. Whoa. Danger, danger. I got my car license and I got a car. Still at high school, age 16. Do you remember this? Yeah, the Vauxhall, that's right. Dad, I had this, this car, it was mine. It was what Dad said to me, he said, I'll give you the car, but you have to pay for running it. Listen to this, you young ones, and parents, you can breathe a sigh of relief. I had to pay the petrol, I had to pay the registration, the insurance, well, I didn't have insurance, um, never mind. Um, I had to pay all of that stuff myself, so I had a part-time job on the weekends to jolly will keep this thing going. But you know what the neat thing about it was? I was one of three who drove a car as a student to school and parked it in the teacher's car park. (laughs) I was the envy of the school. It was wonderful. It really was. So that was adolescence. So I transitioned through the various stages um, or the modes of transportation as I matured. Here's my point. Imagine me today trying to do my job on a two-wheeler. Imagine me coming to visit you, John, on my bike, my (laughs) two-wheeler. Well, you can if you want. I'm simply not interested. (laughs) Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You see, church, here's the real point. All of us have a God-given call on our life to make a difference in our lifetime. But you won't achieve what you could achieve if you're still riding a two-wheeler with training wheels. That's the point. 
It's about growing. It's actually about growing up. It's about expanding your life, growing in your maturity, growing as a person. We need to successfully transition through the four stages, the physical, the mental, emotional, and spiritual maturity. And we need to grow, church. We really do. We have to grow as people. We have to grow as the church, grow spiritually as a church, grow um, numerically as a church. We have to do all of those things. It's biblical to do so. I don't want to stay stuck on a two-wheeler with training wheels. Who's with me? I want to move on in my life. I want to grow and grow up. Because if you don't, like a faulty lift, you wind up being stuck between floors. That's what will happen. It's kind of like rowing with one oar in the water. Have you ever seen someone do that? Rowing with one oar in the water, you know what happens? They just go round and round in circles. It's the definition of insanity, church, doing the same thing over and over while expecting a different result. That's the definition of insanity. I don't want to live like that. See, unless you believe in reincarnation, which in my opinion is total nonsense, you only get to live this life just once. So make it count. That's what God is saying here. Don't waste it by staying attached to a vehicle that will limit your progress and limit your potential and limit your opportunities. Don't stay attached to that group of people that are taking you backwards instead of forwards. Get a hold of a vehicle. It's an illustration, it's a metaphor that's going to take you forward. And you know the best place to do that is in the life of the local church. Here's an example of insanity. This is for the church, by the way. Here are four beliefs or vehicles that once worked, but don't work anymore, but some churches still perpetuate it. Number one, appealing to people out of guilt and obligation. Have you tried doing that? Doesn't work. Waste of time. Assuming people know how to become a Christian and grow in their faith on their own. No, they won't. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we need to get alongside people who have just come to faith or are struggling in their journey. Simon, we've got to walk alongside them. Just like you as a doctor, you've got to walk alongside with your patients. I'm sure you do that from a distance, I would imagine. But you still do that. We've got to get alongside people. People are not just going to do that automatically. We can't assume that they're going to, when they become a follower of Jesus, that they're going to grow in their faith all on their own. Won't happen. Here's the third one. Expecting disconnected believers to return to church of their own accord. The reality is that some do, but many don't. That's reality. Number four, the church relying on strategies that worked in the past. They might have been great then, but don't work today. So why do we continue doing them? You know, things change, church. God is creative. That's why he's called the creator. So to be relevant for our time that we, that we live in, we need to be creative and innovative. How many of you agree with that? We've got to get on board with this stuff. Let me illustrate it this way. Creative and innovative. Because if we don't, we could miss out on the new thing or the fresh thing that God is wanting to do. God's not stuck in time. In fact, he's not even subject to time. We are. God is always on the move. He's always doing something. He's on the move right now in this auditorium. He's speaking to hearts right now. This is the God that we serve. 
Let me illustrate it this way. In 1968, a Swiss scientist invented what we now call the quartz watch. How many remember when they first came out? Who's got a quartz watch now? Here's a few. Yep. He, the Swiss scientist invented the quartz watch. At that moment, the Swiss controlled 80% of the world's market in watches. They're great watchmakers, by the way. They had, watch, they had the watchmaking industry in the bag, 80% of it. Great, great watchmakers had gears, um, springs, jewels, mechanical movements. And one of their designers, listen to this, came up with the quartz crystal operate, operating system. It wasn't the Japanese guy that did it. It was a Swiss uh, um, inventor that invented that. No mainspring, no gears, no jewels required. It was innovative. It was cutting-edge technology. It was absolutely amazing. Well, he took it to the, no, the people that knew what they were doing in the Swiss watchmaking industry, and he showed it to them. And this is what the elite manufacturers in Switzerland said. No. It doesn't have gears. It's got to have a mainspring. It's a gimmick, and it won't last. Are the lights going on? And here's what the switch, uh, and here's what this, um, this inventor did. They rejected what he had. So he took his idea to a technology trade fair. And guess what? Mr. Seiko happened to walk by he saw this new innovation. He saw its potential, and he bought the rights to it, and the rest, as they say, was simply history. Folks, we can't afford to live that way. We can't afford to be like that. Innovation, church, is not evil. God gives us new possibilities, fresh ideas, innovative thoughts that make us more relevant to our culture and to our society. Unfortunately, some people resist change. Please, can I implore you this morning, don't be one of them. You know, the only people that like change are wet babies. <laughs> change is a good thing if it's God-generated change. So if we're going to impact our generation and beyond, we also need to do this. We need to have a commitment then to prepare for the harvest. You know, one of the reasons why Christine and I took the call here um, was because God laid on our heart, um, a fr I mean, I'm 65 then, a fresh start, something new and fresh. Why, why would I want to just just because I turned 65, retire, pack up, and go and sit in an old people's home. Why would I want to do that when I've still got passion and energy and, and a desire to serve God? Why would I want to do that? I mean, it's okay if that's what you want to do. Good for you. But I won't be doing that until my time comes. Then I will, absolutely. And we had the sense that, that in this season, however long the season is going to be, that God <coughs> was still going to use us to grow his kingdom. How many of you think like that? And you should, because it's biblical to do so. Be encouraged. This message is for you. Be encouraged. A commitment to prepare for the harvest. In Luke 5, 
Luke recounts the story of the disciples fishing all night and catching absolutely nothing. And then verse 4 of Luke 5 says, When he, and this is Jesus, had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught, caught nothing. Nevertheless, because you, God, have said so. How many of you can relate to that? Because you, God, have said that to me. I will let down the net. Hello, someone out there? And verse 6 says, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, so big that their net was breaking, and their boat began to sink. You see, this is what God does. When it's a God thing, that's what he does. I expect this church to grow, Leanna, numerically. I expect it. Not because I'm better than anybody else, but because that's what God's called me to do. I expect to see the church grow numerically. I expect to see us grow spiritually. How many are with me on this? I expect to see our church grow economically, John. I expect to see it expand. I'm not, not here just to twiddle my thumbs. There's a call on your life, and God has put a call on your life, whatever that call happens to be. Simon over here and his wife, Leanna, they're calling their life to, to be doctors. And, and that will, so, you're retired, aren't you? Retired doctor now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, you must be a lot looking after this guy. <laughs> you probably need to be a doctor to look after him. But he's a doctor. That was the call on his life. And that's what he does. Find what God has gifted you for. There's another doctor right there. Hither. I mean, find what God has called you to do, whether it's builder, baker, candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, grab it with both hands and make the most of it. Be the best you can, and in doing so, you are honoring Him. That's what it's all about. So I do what I do, not, not because I think I'm better than anybody else or anything like that. That was, In fact, when I went to Bible college, I never ever wanted to be a pastor. Figure that one out. I, I said to Christine, ain't going to happen. And she said to me, you're dead right, it's not going to happen. But it did. God did a work. And here we are. You grab hold of what God has called you to do with Caleb's 85 years of age. And he still says, I want that inheritance. Does that speak to your spirit? 85. So Luke, back to Luke 5. So verse 6, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. As we know, verse 7 says the boat was sinking. Growth and increase and expansion and multiplication, these are all core principles of the gospel. They are godly principles for us as individuals and for us corporately to embrace in the, in the life of our church. Therefore, it is absolutely vital that we position ourselves now in anticipation of what God is wanting to do. Someone say amen. We position ourselves now. And you watch what God can do. Jesus said to Simon, let down the nets. In other words, Simon, your job 
is to let down the net, get into position, do what you can do. Once he had done that, then God acted and the rest was up to him. See, it's not all up to you. What is up to you is to do what you can, what you've been called to do. And God will do the rest. Mike, can you bring the music team up? I want to conclude and read Acts 13, 36 again because I want to explain to you the context behind David's life. So it said, Acts 13, 36 says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. It's, we're speaking here on the biblical principle of generational transfer. From one generation to the next generation. It implies a passing on to, not a taking away from. I don't, I don't believe that the generations, future generations, should get weaker. I believe they should get stronger because of what we do. I believe that my, my family, my children, my children's children should be better off than what I was. They don't have to inherit what I inherited. I can pass on something much more positive to them if I do this God's way. You with me, church? I believe the generation, succeeding generation, should get stronger, not weaker. And you see that in this principle of generational transfer. In 2 Kings 19, we're talking about David. David is one example of this powerful principle. The context of 2 Kings 19 is, is it's important to understand because it describes the deliverance of Jerusalem. Um, the, um, the Assyrians, uh, the, uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian um, king, was attacking, um, going to attack the nation of Israel or Judah. Um, uh, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, and he was hopelessly outnumbered. In fact, he didn't have many soldiers at all. Most of the people in the city were civilians like us. Fortunately, though, Hezekiah was a good king, and he followed in the footsteps of his great, great, great grandfather, David. The Assyrians, in and of themselves, would have slaughtered what was left of his army. They would have taken into captivity the whole of the nation, um, uh, and they would have been slaves. That's what would have happened. But Hezekiah, fortunately, got on his knees, faced with certain defeat, he prayed that God would intervene. And God responded to Hezekiah, and you can see it for yourself, um, 1934 to 35. He, God said this um, to Hezekiah. I will defend this city and save it, listen, for the sake of my servant David. Hold that thought. I will defend it, not because of you, Hezekiah, but for the sake of my servant David. Hold that thought. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies lying all over the ground, and they hadn't lift a finger. Here's what I want you to hear. The defeat of the Assyrians for the sake of my servant David, listen to this, took place... 300 years after David had died. There's a few stunned looks out there at the moment. 300 years 
after this good king, David, died, God is still honoring his legacy 30, 10 generations later. Because a generation, at least according to Google, everyone go Google, Mr. Google, a generation is 30 years in our lifetime. 10 generations later, God is honoring what David did in his generation. Did you get that? In other words, church, what we do today really, really matters tomorrow and beyond. You know, those who serve in this church week in and week out are not just blessing us today. What Mike and the team and everyone else in the life of this church, our door greeters, our sound desk people, our pastoral care people, our pastors, people that work in the cafe, children's ministry, all of those people, what they do today is not just about today, church. Even after they're gone, it can have an impact on the generation to come. This is a powerful principle. God put me here on this earth, church, I believe, not just to pay off my mortgage, not just to go to heaven when my time's up, but when my time's up, I hope and I pray that there will be a legacy that I pass on, a legacy that continues even after I have gone through my children, my children's children that you saw here, the, the grandchildren, and beyond. You know, Heather, that's my hope, that's my prayer. That's what drives me to do what I'm doing today. That's why it's my privilege and my honor to serve God the way that we serve. It's not just about my life here on earth, in my lifetime. It goes way beyond that. You know, here's a, here's a truth, church. When God looks at your life at the end of it, He won't measure your impact by how, how much money you made, not by your IQ, how many degrees you have, or how many houses you built or sold. It'll be... Paul, did you serve the purposes of God in your generation? Did you do that? And you know what I want to say to him? You bet. You bet I did. How about you? See, we all get this opportunity. We get one shot at this life. Unless you're Shirley MacLaine, you get one shot at life. You know who Shirley MacLaine is? The actress that believes in new age or something? That you go round and round in life, you come back, die, die as a human and come back as, a, as an ant or something? That kind of thing? Well, it doesn't happen that way. We get one shot at this life. And I believe when you look at it through the framework of generational transfer, you can absolutely make it count for something positive. You with me, church? So, here's the music team there. They're getting ready to, to play. I think we've got a song, Mike, that we're going to play. 
I don't want you to stand up. In fact, I'll get you in the music team just to start singing that song. Right? I don't want you to stand up. What I'd like you to do in your own time, you ask God, what, what is he saying to you? You ask him. And it's a simple prayer, God, what are you saying to me this morning? Because there are many ways that God talks through the worship, through the word, um, through his word that we read. While we're sitting here just um, soaking up what God is doing. But often the thought that comes into your heart and your spirit, that's the first thing you should respond to. And if God is calling you to something fresh and new, I encourage you, take the opportunity to embrace it. Stand and say, okay, God, whatever it is, that's what I'll do. Father, we welcome your presence. And we say, Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.